0: Hi, Sacred Tension fans. My name is Matt Langston, and I play in a band called Eleventy Seven. I'm an artist, a producer, and I also host my own podcast right here on Rock Candy called Eleventy Life. We talk with the people behind your favorite songs and albums, from the writers to the producers and everyone in between. And we're not asking your favorite artists the same old boring questions like, where did your band name come from? And who's your favorite friend's character? We're asking questions like, why did your marriage fail? Where does love come from? Is God real? It is a show about the importance of creativity and pursuing your passion. And we don't let guests leave until it gets a little bit uncomfortable. So check it out right here on Rock Candy and your favorite podcast app.
1: This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long. Earlier this year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change dropped a horrifying ultimatum on the world. We have a mere 12 years to mobilize a World War II level effort to change the effects of climate change to avoid a cataclysmic future. Like many people... I try to be a conscientious and informed citizen. I try to stay abreast of all that is happening in the world, and I try to affect change in my own small way. But this IPCC report completely paralyzed me with terror. How do we even begin to affect change? In the face of such a daunting task, with the lives of future generations and entire species at stake, I can't imagine that I'm the only person who feels this way. Many of us, when confronted with such huge realities, simply shut down. And that's the very worst thing we can do. To try to help myself and others who might be feeling a similar paralysis, I invited my friend Peterson Toscano back onto the show to talk me and my audience down from the ledge. Peterson Toscano is a climate activist, LGBT activist, biblical scholar, and actor. This conversation is what my soul needed, and I found his hope contagious. He offered some new perspectives that I'd never considered before. And while I still struggle with climate fear, my conversation with Peterson has greatly encouraged me. As Peterson reminds us in this conversation, there is such a thing as climate change denial, But there is also such a thing as climate hope denial. More than anything right now, we need hope that can inspire us to act and to create a more compassionate, connected, and enlightened humanity. With that, I'm delighted to give you my conversation with Peterson Toscano. Hello, Peterson Toscano. Welcome back to the show. Steven, it is so wonderful
2: to be back.
1: Yeah, so uh, listeners of the show will know you as a former guest who came on to talk about uh, recovering from ex-gay therapy. But today we're going to be talking about something very different, which is, uh, for me, maybe about as traumatizing as ex-gay therapy, and that is climate change. Bum-bum-bum!
2: Um, <laughs>
1: yes, <yeah>, so, <laughs> so you are a climate activist and... You're just a very wise person in my life. And so I wanted you to come onto the show to talk me through this because... Uh, the so let's see, we are recording this on the 25th. Uh, about two weeks ago, the 25th of October, about two weeks ago, the International Panel of Climate Change released their horrifying statement. Uh, for people who don't know, the IPCC is a body of the UN. A research body of the UN, specifically dedicated to climate change, they are renowned. They are conservative on their estimates. They are they tend to undershoot things. They they are pretty legit. So the history here is that in, in the aftermath of the Paris Agreement, certain nations, you know, the agreement was that nations would shoot for no more than two degrees of raised temperature and a minimum of one point five degrees Celsius. But certain, especially island nations, were very worried about the consequences of 1.5 degrees. And so they requested a study specifically on that, specifically on what would be the consequences of 1.5 degrees. So the IPCC report, it was not itself a study. It was a meta study. It was a study of studies. And it was a study of thousands of studies from around the world basically showing that 1.5 degrees is worse than we had anticipated and that it's and that it's very scary and that 2 degrees of warming which is which we are set to just blow through right now if we don't put on the brakes in a serious way will be absolutely devastating will be a holocaust many times over will be the equivalent of of great genocide. Okay, so Peterson is hearing me frame these in apocalyptic terms, and I can see him smiling. So I have really struggled with this. I care enormously about the environment. I care enormously about the future. And this is scary to me. Science Mike released a fantastic episode about this last week, and that episode just fucked me up. It just destroyed me. Um... He just laid it down and and just kind of slapped his entire audience in the face with it. And, you know, last week I was so depressed and so debilitated and so horrified, I just could not function. And I'm feeling a bit better this week. And Peterson Toscano, who is a climate activist, is here to talk me through this because I can't imagine that I'm the only one feeling this way.
2: Well, in the words and melody of Irving Berlin... There may be trouble ahead, but while there's <laughs> moonlight and music and love and romance, let's face the music and dance. So I uh, <laughs> I think we need to face the music and dance, and that is often the part that is left out, the dancing bit, because um, the reality is that we've just yet again received this terrifying diagnoses. And people are, you know, terrified by it. But the first thing that I tell people when I talk about climate change is that I talk about climate change in ways that are different from a lot of people. I banish guilt, shame, fear, and anger from the discussion. Not that these things, we can't feel these things, but I'm not going to stir up that right? We don't need to stir up more fear. We do not need to make people feel ashamed of their lifestyles. That doesn't help. We know this from talking about sexuality. Right, that's already there. Right, but we know this from talking about sexuality, right? It doesn't help when we're talking about our orientation, our gender, if we insert shame and fear and anger. Those are unhelpful things. And similarly with climate, doesn't do any good. Secondly, it's so important to understand that While we are taking in this very serious diagnosis, there is hope. There are things that we can do as individuals. There are things that we can do as communities. There are things that we can do as nations and things that we can do internationally. And there's a lot of work that's been done, a lot of groundwork that's been done. So it's not like everyone just got this diagnosis. There's been a lot of people working on this for a long time. But the important things happening is folks like you in the general public, it's, it's cracking through and you're having this moment, this, what we say in, in, in Greek, in, in the Bible as you're having an apocalypse, which is a revelation. Yes. Right? It's like, rah, yes. An apocalypse about a potential apocalypse. And, and, and that's jarring, mm. right? It's, it's, it's difficult. And your job today, you want to, you want to get calmed down. You want to see things into perspective. And I am very, very happy to help you with that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Because I need some help, at least for
1: the sake of my partner who is um having to deal with my mood swings. And everyone at work. Uh yeah, it's it's been a really it's been a really, really hard
2: two weeks for me. Well and yeah. Well, let me tell you a Go story on. that that may it parallels yes, your own experience. So something similar like this happened in my own household uh in 2012. So Little background, I come from an immigrant, Italian-American, Roman Catholic, working-class family, not environmentalist at all. I mean, my dad would recycle and reuse, but only because he was cheap and had nothing to do with the planet. He also, like, would bur- burn <laughs> anything that could burn as a way of getting rid of it. So I didn't, ha- I didn't come from that background. Then I was evangelical Christian for many years where we just had an absolute disregard for the planet and the body. So it's like, you know, this is a rental property. This world is not my home. So I was not engaged. And then when I came out gay, you know, the reality is as, as queer folks, we've had bigger fish to fry. We've had to fight for our own liberation and our own safety. So climate change, environmental issues, just so not on my my radar. 2012, my dad was very sick. He was dying, actually, of of cancer. And so it was a strange time for me. I come home to find my husband, Glenn, weeping and sobbing in the bedroom. Now Glenn is not a weeper. I'm the weeper in the family. It's a very clear division of labor, right? I weep, he comforts me. It works beautifully. Yeah. Are, are, me too. Are, I am
1: I am the weeper. John is John is the suicide uh prevention specialist
2: and psychotherapist. It's
1: a great Yeah. <laughs> it's a great division of labor.
2: So I'm the one always freaking out, Glenn's comforting me and suddenly Glenn's weeping. Now Glenn's family is from South Africa. He he grew up in South Africa. His parents are there. And I immediately thought, oh, crap, he got bad news about his family. And so I said, Glenn, what's, what's going on? He points to this magazine article, and he says, it's about climate change and i swear my eyes must have just rolled so fast without even like thinking i was like climate change what, what who, who not like who cares but like why what, what we never talk about climate change and it was after the ipcc report came out in 2012 that was also very alarming that things were worse than they had imagined they were happening fa- faster than they feared and he's losing his shit over this and he's struggling because he, he teaches creative writing and he's thinking how can i just carry on teaching creative writing when this this crisis is upon us. Now, Glenn, he was involved with the anti-apartheid struggle in the early 90s when he was a university student, and he was part of the queer liberation movement in South Africa. So he's someone who understands there are issues that come up that it's not business as usual, that you need to put your life on the line. You need to get your body involved. And he was feeling this about climate change and having an like an existential crisis. Like, what can I do? I'm you know not accustomed to comforting. I was like... They're there. it'll be it'll be okay or not? I don't know. We'll move to Maine. I don't know. we'll we'll join a group. We'll research. I don't know. what do you do? You know, you comfort as best as you can. So he went off to study more about climate change in his spare time because that's how that's how he likes to waste time by researching. I waste time with stupid YouTube videos, but there you have it. He he (laughs) begins to look at possible responses to climate change, including the possibility of a legislative fix of putting a price on carbon so that we can begin to decarbonize the economy. Because part of the problem is, you know, there's just so much polluting going on. And it's not just our own homes, but much more happens outside of our homes. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. It sounds boring. But okay, We we joined a group called Citizens Climate Lobby. And I began to do my own reading. And one day I was, um, you know, reading about climate change and all the articles sort of hit me in the head, but didn't actually hit me in the heart or the gut. And in a way, what you had was this heart-gut reaction because suddenly it became real to you on a different level. It wasn't just like yeah. a mental ascent like, climate change is happening. It's real. It's like, shit, it's happening. And you, I think your creativity and your imagination got engaged and it was shocking. Well- But that takes a little doing, and um, and a lot of these, you know, a lot of these articles about polar bears and a lot of these, like, pictures of what looks like the same chart over and over and over again, it doesn't actually hit us in the heart and the gut, typically. But this one day, I'm reading this article about drought, and it said on a warmer planet, we're going to have... Longer droughts, deeper droughts. This will lead to potential crop failures, malnutrition, starvation, mass migration, political instability, war. I mean, things that we actually are already seeing in the world. And as someone really concerned with human rights this started tracking with me. This started kind of to make my heart beat faster, like, whoa, this is about people. So as someone concerned with human rights, this really started clicking with my heart. I really started feeling it. And then I'm reading the article and it gets to the end, and it said, on a warmer planet, we're going to see challenges in growing crops, including challenges to growing wheat, leading to a potential global shortage of pasta products. And I was like, wait, 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 what? Pasta? is a potentially an endangered species, And in my little (laughs) Italian-American heart and gut, I lost it. It was this weird, visceral moment where suddenly it all came crashing in that something that is part of my life, my culture... Is being threatened, and I, I like, I really wish I weren't such a shallow person. But there you have it. Uh, that's what really moved me and helped me to see. Okay, this is something that affects me, and something affects I, something I care about. And at this point, my dad had already passed away and left me a little bit of money, and I decided to take some of that money and spend a year studying climate science and climate communication and figuring mm. out. What do we need to do to help people get closer to this issue, to become curious about it? And I realized I needed to do what I'd been doing all these years with conversion therapy and queer theology. It needed stories. It needed comedy. It needed camp and a lot of empathy. And uh, during that year, I developed a, a podcast called Climate Stew and lots of material and comic material for the stage uh, to, you know, to kind of help me and my audiences wrap their heads and their hearts around this issue.
1: Awesome. That's beautiful. And so, you know, I I feel like I have made some progress since last week. When I am... Okay, so so actually some backstory. Now, I say this without assuming that you're going to become my therapist for the next hour.
2: (laughs) Again, not my skill set.
1: (laughs) That's what my partner's for. No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) Apocalyptic terror has a long history for me. In that I was in a shooting in 2007, and I watched two of my friends killed. This was in Colorado, and I was the fifth person in the hallway and the only one who wasn't shot. That destroyed my life. And for years after that, the PTSD manifested itself as apocalyptic terror. And I was easy prey for every doomsday conspiracy on the planet. Every Alex Jones conspiracy on the planet, Mm -hmm. I absorbed so, and, and it was so bad that I could not plan four months into the future because in four months, I assumed that we would all be dead or a year in the future. And so it's like I had no future because I, I couldn't plan for it. The idea that I'm now 30 years old in the year 2018 would, would just astonish that, that younger Steven. And that is actually something that gives me hope in that i believed that the world was ending when i was in my early 20s i truly did i was scared every moment of the day and yet here i am i survived so that's the positive the negative is that this kind of apocalyptic terror is those pathways are already embedded inside of me and and they can get ignited pretty easily and what's hard for me is the the Alex Jones apocalypses weren't true, but this one might be. And as someone who who lives with a certain... You know, I have recovered so much and so well that it's, that I live with a shadow of the PTSD that I used to, but I still live with it. And so for someone who is... Who, who already has this history, when the apocalypse might actually be real, what the fuck am I supposed to do with that? And, you know, so that's kind of the backstory here. And last week, you know, when I, when I have just overwhelming panic, I smoke. That's my bad habit. And I had not smoked for about a year, and then I started smoking again. That should give people an idea of how bad this was for me, was I started smoking. And then after about a week of that, I was just like, you know, I'm not going to help anything by killing myself. So the first step, I don't know what the next step after that is. I have no fucking clue. <laughs> I don't know how to save the world. But obviously, saving the world does not entail killing myself. So I can at least check that box off and move yeah. on from that. So I'm not smoking. I am i stopped that. I'm trying to get my sleep back under control. I'm running. And you know, I'm I'm just finding those healthy habits because obviously killing myself is not the answer. Right, right. That's as that's as far as I've got. That's as far as I've got right now.
2: And you know what you're talking about is so true. And for so many of us, when we experience panic, stress, whatever, we can become self-destructive. You know, and and so it makes sense that that's you know where you would turn for. Comfort or distraction or whatever. I, um, you know, I went through various stages myself, uh, that I, I observed these very clear stages that I went through from the moment I had, I freaked out to a place where I felt I had hope and direction. But it didn't happen overnight. There were these various stages. And I, in fact, wrote a funny little monologue about it called the five stages of hot climate action. And since I'm a character actor, I could assign a different yes. character to each of these stages to help highlight it. So some of this may sound familiar to you. Some of this may be in your future. But I think when we have a shock like this, it's like hearing, you know, like a parent is diagnosed with something awful. It it takes a little while to really figure out how do I go forward from here? So here are right. the five stages of hot climate action. So the first stage is the freak out stage, which we've just been talking about. And whatever reason, for whatever reason, my freak out stage sounds a lot like my dad, Pete Toscano. It goes like this. Holy guacamole. It's the end of the world as we know it. Global warming is going to crush us. Drought, flood, pestilence, whatever that is. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream water, we're going to hell in a handbasket. So then after freaking out, for a while, the pendulum swung a little to the other side as I toyed with denial. I didn't come right out and deny climate change, but it was tempting, and it sounded a little like this. Yes, I am concerned about the climate change, of course, but perhaps it won't be a catastrophe. I mean, Siberia actually could use a little bit of warming. We do not know everything yet. I read something somewhere. Maybe they will invent something. This could just be another Y2K. For people of a certain age, they know how the world was freaking out with Y2K. <laughs> But I couldn't drive away the reality of what's happening. But then guilt and shame kicked in because I realized I was part of the problem. So in response, I attempted to purge my life of all greenhouse gases. So I changed all my light bulbs. I bought these really super expensive, efficient ones. And then I stopped drying my clothes in the dryer. Well, partly because I couldn't afford to after all of those expensive light bulbs. And then when this radical vegan activist with really bad breath screamed at me, I became a vegetarian for about a month. But then it happened. The despair Descended upon me when I realized that my individual efforts, even my household efforts, were pathetic in light of the scope and the size of this problem. And this is what the despair was like. But what difference does it make? I purged myself dry. No one around me seems to care. And even if they did lower their own personal carbon footprints in the sand, it's like a teardrop in the ocean, which is quickly acidifying. The very roads they build for us are soaked in fossil fuels. The whole infrastructure is out of my control. It's like the trials of Job. Just curse God and die. I don't know why, but my despair sounds downright biblical. But then something happened. I started to meet other people who were worried, but were seeking solutions. And action is an antidote to despair. And I began to find hope, but more importantly, I began to find determination. And this is what that sounds like. We live in extraordinary times. So much uncertainty, dangers, and fears. But this is not our first rodeo. Our ancestors faced myriad challenges together. The Great Depression, World War II, the HIV-AIDS crisis. They learned an important truth that we are discovering today. We are not alone we have each other to comfort to encourage to join our voices together and together dear friends we shall do the extraordinary
0: <laughs>
1: that's awesome i i wish i wish this was a visual medium so that so that <laughs> listeners could also see you performing this okay so in those five stages that you just performed i feel like I am somewhere between stage four and five. Okay, I feel like I'm I'm moving out of stage four, and and so to just recap, so stage, uh, stage one is shock and panic, right? Right. <laughs> stage two is shame. Was it shame?
2: It was denial. Toying, no denial. Tying with denial. denial.
1: Yeah. Oh, and I was... Okay. I, yeah. When I was a douchebag college libertarian conspiracy theorist, I was a climate change deniler, d- denialist. Denial? Denialist? Denialer? Skeptic. Whatever. Skeptic.
2: <laughs> there we go. And, and then um, three is the personal purge when you try to, you know, be right. the perfect little citizen.
1: Right. And I, I've gone through that, I feel like. And then four is hopelessness. And, you know, I've I've read a lot of articles lately because I've just been scouring the internet lately. I mean, it, I've just been mainlining this shit, trying to find some perspective. And a lot of the articles that I've read have been: the planet is dead, the planet is dying. We have we have a death sentence as a human race, and there might be a runaway feedback loop, which will turn our planet into Saturn, destroy life on this planet as we know it.
2: You don't have to go into it all because when you it, you don't have to go into this all i mean because it just stirs up the fear again for for me yes, exactly. for you for the listener because for everyone right and i you know in part we're hearing those kind of scary stories because so many people have been unwilling to listen to climate change so right. they're trying to grab us by our shoulders and scare the shit out of us so we pay attention but you already they have your attention now, so those stories are exactly. not helpful at this point. They they woke you up, but it's not helpful to k- stay in that state of panic,
1: right? And 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 I mean, what basically the thesis of these articles are? Let's just practice mindfulness to <laughs> our death. Oh no! And I'm like, I mean, that yeah, I've read articles like that very, well, and I'm just like, I'm but, not ready for that. I right. can I'm. Th- fucking 30 years old. Exactly. I want to see I want to see my three cats grow to maturity and go to college. Like right. I Well, <laughs> and, and have a loving future.
2: What you're running into, okay, we talked about people who are climate skeptics, climate deniers. There's also a group yeah. of people who are hope deniers. They deny the yes. possibility of hope. They deny the possibility of success. And strangely enough, a queer way of looking at climate change is one that envisions a hopeful, sustainable, successful, just future. That takes actually a great deal, much more imagination, and, and it's more radical than to just assume that everything's going to go to shit. Yes. Yeah. And so what I hear you saying is you're pushing back against this despair you know, it's like, no, give me something else. I don't want to just wallow in this despair because for one, where can you go with that? And you're young, you're energetic, you're creative, you're smart. Surely you have something to contribute to taking this thing on. And that is such an important question for us to be asking, what is my role on this new planet? And so one thing I suggest is stop reading those articles that talk about the science and how horrible it is right now because th- that's not the only thing being written about climate change and it served its purpose in your life. Instead, there's an excellent book called Drawdown and what Drawdown does is it talks to all sorts of experts and comes up with 100 big Responses that we can have to climate change, as a society, as nations, uh, as as a planet, and there are things that you don't expect. And what they do is they'll talk. They'll, they've they've rated them from you know one hundred down to the top number one thing we can do. And interestingly enough, number five, number five thing that can really help in reducing carbon emissions and drawing down our dependence on fossil fuel is the education of women and girls globally. Number five. And why is that, right? Well, in part, because it makes women more independent, they have more uh, financial control over their lives, they have more control over their reproductive rights and reproductive health, and they end up having less children. But they also are able to earn more money and protect their families in different ways. There's lots of things. But that's the number five thing, which is something that so many people are already on board for, the education of women and girls, is so critical in human rights work. So I would say, like, they have an excellent website, the Drawdown website, where they have some samples of this. And I bought the book. It's a big, beautiful, brightly colored book. And literally, for about 100 days, it was my daily devotion, where I would read one of these. They're usually one or two pages each. And they give you the breakdown of how this solution can help really address climate change and who's working on those solutions. So that's one thing I would do is is start looking at different sources. The second thing I would say is, you know, there are two ways that people approach climate change. One is the fancy word mitigation. How can we reduce our pollution? And the other is adaptation. How can we respond to the changes that have already occurred on our planet and that will increase? With mitigation, there's just so much I can do, right? I can lower my carbon footprint, but really the system is locked in because the government has to change how we get our energy. And while fossil fuels are so cheap, changing over is going to be really difficult. And so that's why putting a price on carbon, getting involved with that is helpful. But adaptation, well, there's a lot actually I can do around adaptation. I've been talking with uh, Dr. Natasha DeJanet from the American Public Health Association. And she says that climate change poses the greatest threat to public health. Also, it's the greatest opportunity to improve and protect public health. Because if we know these risks are coming, there are things that we can do. And there's these really fascinating studies that show if a community is close-knit strong and connected before an extreme weather event, more people survive than in a community that is the same demographics but is not close-knit. And what one of the ways we can respond to climate change is by building community. And for LGBTQ people, this is so critical at a time when we're really feeling threatened in the United States legally, politically. The threats to climate change also affect us differently. We are at a little greater risk to climate change than perhaps our straight and cisgender counterparts, which seems weird, right? Like, why would climate change affect, like, is it homophobic and transphobic too? Like, everything else on the planet? (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's not. It's that, you know, this is how I look at it. If you're having a hard time in America on a sunny day, when it's nice out, if we're having a hard time on one of those days, it's just going to magnify when a big storm comes or a heat wave comes. So think about LGBTQ youth. 40% of homeless youth in America are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or gender non-binary. These are the kids who say it's safer to live on the streets of a city I don't know than in my own home and my own community. That's still happening today. They're also a population that often don't go to shelters. Although there might be youth shelters in the city, they don't feel safe. Why do you think that is?
1: I mean, I can't imagine that it's a stable setting.
2: No, that's for sure. It's and a, I it's a, can't
1: and I can't imagine that that it is. I mean. This is a whole thing, actually, that I'm this is a whole world that I'm not terribly aware of, but I can't imagine that they don't experience homophobia and abuse and racism and sexism there as well, and physical abuse and sexual abuse and whatnot. I imagine that it's just as prevalent there.
2: Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, and exactly what you're doing is what's required in thinking about adaptation for climate change, engaging our. Our imagination and what you're imagining is, is true, particularly when you think about who runs most homeless shelters. It's usually churches and religious organizations that run many of them. Some are, you know, run by the city or whatever, but it's usually churches. And so pe- young people rightfully assume, well, <laughs> I'm not really welcome there. Also, they're highly gendered spaces where they separate people by sex which is something our current administration is really trying to say, that your gender is whatever your birth sex is. And that's what happens at these shelters. Boys here, girls there. Well, if you're trans, if you're gender non-binary, you don't want to put up with that shit. So you have a whole group of people who are already vulnerable, who are more vulnerable because they won't seek shelter on a nice day. But what happens when the storms come? And that's what we're seeing with climate change, bigger storms, more frequent storms at times, um, but definitely bigger, more dangerous storms. And it's not just what happens during the storm, but afterwards, that aftermath, the flooding and all that. These young people typically don't have experiences with the severity of this kind of weather. Where do they go when the shit hits the fan? Do we know? Are we prepared? To me, a queer response to climate change is having at least some emergency shelters in places that are very friendly to queer youth so that the word is on the street. Listen, we get it. You don't want to be in shelter, whatever. But when the shit hits the fan, go here. They'll be cool about it. They won't mess with you. It's a safe place. It will save lives. I'll give you another example, LGBT senior citizens, which is a growing population. We lost so many gay men in particular during the HIV AIDS crisis that we kind of lost a generation of elders. But now we're seeing an increase with baby boomers and such, an increase of LGBTQ seniors who have experienced a lifetime of discrimination. They may be estranged from family. They may have had a long-term partner but never received a benefits when that partner passed away. They may have been underemployed or unemployed or didn't get to seek the profession they wanted because they were queer. And so they have less of an income. And similarly, like the youth who not wanting to go into shelters, a lot of Older queer folks don't want to go to retirement communities and nursing homes or even have people come in and care for them because that exposes them yet again to potential discrimination and abuse. So they are more isolated than non-LGBTQ seniors. So what happens when the heat waves come? That's another thing that we expect is going to happen with climate change. And once it gets above around 95 degrees, the very old, the older folks, younger folks, people with respiratory problems, it becomes fatal. So what happens when you have to run your AC 24-7 if you have AC and it costs so much that you have to decide between that and food? Do we have a list of the LGBTQ seniors in our communities. Is our community centers looking out for this population? Could we partner younger people like yourself with a senior uh, so that before, during, and after an extreme weather event, you can just check in with this person? Not only would this save lives, because it will, it also builds beautiful intergenerational community. You'll learn from the senior. They'll be helped by just having you in their lives. This is an incredibly loving, empathetic response to climate change change that we can start on right now.
1: When I back up, what I see you doing is saying, not in spite of, but because of the crisis of climate change, we can create a more compassionate, interconnected humanity and that that is ultimately the opportunity here is am i hearing you correctly with that
2: absolutely absolutely okay. it it gives us that platform to say this urgency you know that we need to I mean we're already seeing people displaced from their homes people having to take in family members strangers pets from a different part of the country so As the the risks of climate change increase, so too must our empathy and love and ability to build community. Mm, That's really moving for
1: me. Because, you know, where my head has been for the past two weeks has been in the energy and technology sector. But that is v- and that's important, you know, and and actually, you know, a lot of the movement that I'm seeing there does give me a lot of hope, you know, like I'm I'm listening to a podcast called The Energy Gang and they're leaders in the in the uh, green energy world. And and it's growing and it's real. And basically what they're saying is we have all the technology we need to turn this around already. We've got the technology. But that is very impersonal for me. Whereas what you are laying out is, is personal. What you are laying out is, is relational and personal and not just where I send my money. And that to me feels so much more hopeful and real and tangible and sustainable for me than I'm just going to give my money to to this startup or to this foundation or to this whatever to grow the technology that we need. You, you see what I'm saying? Like What you are describing just feels so much more human. And not that that other stuff is unimportant. It is very important. But this feels more, uh, it gives more vitality.
2: Yeah, I was just in Belfast in Northern Ireland and I was asked to give a talk, a queer response to climate change for the Green Party there. They have a, a queer a queer wing to the Green Party. And of course they're very concerned about climate change and, and all. But they they had not considered these human aspects of it, this community building. Because again, we're so often pointed to legislative fixes and technical fixes, all, both of which need to happen. But the average person has very little skin in that game and very little cachet. But when as soon as I began speaking about this, you you could just see their imagination sparking and they began to immediately plan oh these are things that we could do you know i th- i think you know what i often say to people whatever you're already passionate about what already you're committed to, it is being affected by climate change. So you don't have to take up a whole new passion to get involved with climate change, but rather to educate yourself, how does the thing I care about, how is that affected by climate change? For me, it's LGBTQ youth, it's seniors, it's immigrants, but for other people, it might be pets. And um, pets are very much affected by, by climate change. And in my podcast, Citizens Climate Radio, I interviewed a veterinarian and I asked her, how are our pets affected? What can we do to protect them? Which a lot of people don't want to talk about climate change, but they will talk about their pets. And here's, you know, one simple thing. When people are forced to evacuate because of a wildfire or flood or something – often they can't take their pets with them. And up to 60% or more of people stay behind because the pet is part of the family. So what some communities are doing is developing emergency pet shelters so that when something like this happens, people have a place to leave their pets. It will save the pet's lives. It will also save human lives because people then don't feel they have to stay behind to take care of their pet. That's something that we can start doing today in our own communities. It's a way of preparing And it's not saying that, like, we've given up hope, there's no fixes to climate change. But it is facing the music and dancing and saying, okay, some of the effects of climate change are already baked in. There's going to be struggles ahead. There's going to be difficulty ahead. And instead of ignoring that reality, let's prepare for it and be resilient and robust so that when it hits us, we're not blindsided. Yeah. This is
1: and you know as you're talking about this just thinking about what are what are my passions I've already decided that I'm going to put climate change into the circulation for sacred tension as one of the regular topics I've I've decided that that I'm just going to kind of keep it keep it going keep Keep the conversation going. I'm going to be looking for more climate experts and activists to come on. But then the other thing, just thinking, you know, like outside of my creative work, this is something that a lot of people don't know is that I manage a locally owned grocery store. So what we do is we get close outs from other companies that are normally very expensive, very high, you know, very healthy, nutritious products. And then we are able to sell it for like 99 cents or one ninety-nine. And so there are entire families in this Appalachian Valley where I live that eat because of the company that I help manage. And so one of the things that I'm really passionate about is food distribution, food sustainability, and helping people eat, and connecting that to this as well. And, and what can I do there? That's that's interesting to me. That's some that's another passion of mine.
2: Yeah. And that's what, it, you know, in a way, you are an expert and becoming more and more of an expert in this at a time when we need people who know how to do that sort of thing. I was just in Orlando, Florida, and I met with somebody who, Teaches hospitality. Um because in in Florida, the hospitality industry is huge. You have all these parks and everything. And in chatting with this professor, I realized people who are being trained to work in hospitality at a Disney hotel among families where there's lots of fears and stress and exhaustion and all, in a way they are perfectly being trained to help in times of extreme weather events because they have to keep cool and calm and be problem solvers and be flexible and resilient. And so we had this great chat about how, a, you know, a class could maybe be taught about applying the skills of hospitality to climate work and to refugee work and to emergency uh, response work.
1: Mm. So basically what you are outlining here, this is something that I have not really explored much is, you know, I've explored the financial consequences. I've explored the technological energy, immigration, all of that stuff. But, But what I haven't explored is the community the the network of community to help st- to to help face the the crisis and turn the world into a more compassionate place because of it that is uh that's hopeful that's really really hopeful especially and and that's something that that gives me hope in the face of a populist tyrant who are coming to power right now uh, who or who have been in power and um because let me i'm just kind of working this out as i talk about it because the the policy stuff feels much more desperate when when compared to the state of many western countries right now however the state of western countries can feel more hopeful when we start to initiate this kind of interconnected compassion hmm. Does
2: that make sense? It does. And I want to increase even your hope level regarding the political aspect as well, because in the climate we live in, we're just constantly being distracted from every other possible story, uh, except for, you know, the madness that happens out of the White House. But here's some good news that a lot of people don't know about. Back in 2012, when my partner and I started climate work and we started working with Citizens Climate Lobby, there was not a single Republican in the U.S. House of Representatives who even acknowledged that climate change was a real thing maybe behind closed doors, we could have a a conversation, but publicly, absolutely not. A few years ago, there were suddenly a handful, up to 12 Republicans who broke ranks and signed this Republican um, statement, basically saying that climate change is real. And as people who have conservative values, this is something that we need to address. And that was major. You know, it started with just a handful, but it got up to 12. Now there is a Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives. So, this is a caucus where for every Republican, there's a Democrat. So, the goal is to come up with a bipartisan bill. That caucus now has 90 members, 45 of them Republican, 45 Democrats. That's larger than the Freedom Caucus, which is where the Tea Party had come out of. This is, you know, a growing thing. So, suddenly it's not a taboo issue for Republicans more moderate ones, obviously, to talk about climate change and those who are most affected by it in parts of Texas and Florida. Similarly, there's a huge movement on college campuses among young Republicans. One of the big causes that they're taking on is putting a price on carbon because they're very concerned about climate change. So they're trying to influence the Republican Party to put a price on carbon and say, we care about this. This is our issue. Do not ignore this. And finally, I just uh, did interviews for my November show, on my podcast, with the Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. So these are evangelicals who are very, very concerned about climate change because of their faith, because they believe in loving our neighbor, and you have these groups of people who traditionally have had nothing to do with this issue suddenly taking it on as their number one issue. Hmm, Yeah.
1: I didn't know especially about the caucus. That's amazing. And that's, what happens that's really with encouraging.
2: these sort of change things. I, I learned a lot from from Glenn and his work with, with apartheid and, and the anti-apartheid struggle, and that so often with changes like this, it seems that things are actually getting significantly worse before they get better. And it seems like people involved, it's like, are we just spinning our wheels? Is nothing happening? And they've been doing groundwork for years, sometimes for decades, but then something happens. And there's a shift. And suddenly things change so quickly, it takes their breath away. It went faster than they could imagine. We saw it with marriage equality in the United States, for instance. Went from, you know, one presidential cycle to the next. Things just changed rapidly. Um, You know, it happens with other movements like that. And I truly believe with climate, so many people are working so hard on the ground level that there's going to come a moment— when things are going to lock into place, and the political will is going to be there, and we're going to see changes in our systems that will happen so quickly that um, it will be astonishing. Mm. You know, you are
1: you're bringing to mind something that I keep reminding. Me. Keep trying to remind myself of, which is that I, okay, so, you know, being gay in North Carolina just five years ago, I could not have imagined a time in which gay marriage was legalized throughout the entire United States. And, you know, there were people, respected people, saying, oh, it won't be for another 10 years or more. You know, it won't be for another couple of decades. I mean, and you've, you probably heard that too. Um, because the landscape was just so fraught and you know living living in north carolina uh i was i was planning on moving to the west coast because the the atmosphere here was just so hard i wanted to be in a place where marriage was legal uh and then suddenly it was like the atmosphere caught fire in a good way Right. It was like kaboom <laughs> and uh, and realizing I actually don't know the future. like I I don't the a future in which gay marriage was legal was actually a future that I could not imagine. or, you know kind of a more technological example. who in 2006 could imagine, that there would be this incredible device called a smartphone that would literally transform every single part of our lives that would appear just 2 years before the first iPhone came out magical that that it you know like almost like a Harry Potter wand like unbelievably magical but who could imagine that that would be a reality in just two years you know what i'm saying so i don't know it you're helping yeah. me you're helping me grasp the fact that human ingenuity and compassion uh, is a thing and that i truly cannot imagine the future and that there is the potential for great horror but there's also the potential for great movement forward
2: yeah i mean the reality is this is not our first rodeo Right. We, we have as a people faced big things. It may be the biggest rodeo, but it's not the first one. And I get a lot of hope actually from looking at uh, the 1980s and early 90s with uh, the response to AIDS where you had so many of the same Situations where you had a government that refused to act, people who wouldn't want, didn't want to talk about it, people afraid of the issue. Uh, hate crimes actually went through the roof during that time period and people were suffering, but not being cared for. I mean, most hospitals in New York wouldn't even take in AIDS patients. So when you see what our ancestors did and how they acted up, and they used their creativity, their anger, their um, fierceness to, to get the attention of America and to change systems, including how drugs were tested and the relationship between patients and doctors they change systems. I think, well, for one, it gives me hope. Like, we've done this kind of thing before. uh, And it has every level of that, right? Caring for people, building community, taking care of food distribution was a huge part of the early HIV AIDS crisis. And that gives me hope. So traveling to the past, I think is helpful. Traveling to the future also has been helpful. During that year off, when I was doing my climate work, one of the things I tasked myself with was writing monologues as if I were a historian writing in the year 2157, like about 150 years in the future, and and expecting that it was a chaotic period, those 150 years, but ultimately we succeeded in that we decarbonized our economy and we adapted to climate change and we developed a more just, loving world. So this historian then is tasked with with giving these short two-minute little overviews of how we did it, like basically who were the players, what happened, and I wrote fifty monologues as this historian, writing as if we already achieved it all, and it's called That Day in Climate History, uh, and and I included it in my climate studio, and part of it was for me. To say, okay, what does success look like? How can I envision that? And what if I just imagined it already happened? How can I reconstruct our history of how we got there? And that was very helpful for me. And it's fascinating to see that some of the things that I was speculating about are already beginning to take place. Mm,
1: that's really cool. Um and, and so, you know, this will be a moment when my my more traditional Christian listeners will raise their eyebrows, but I have found some very weird ways of coping and one <laughs> one way to one way of coping is i'm going to do a whole other podcast about this don't wear don't worry people i will explain this but it's called chaos magic it's a it's an occult tradition that came out of the 70s and it, you know it grew out of traditional ritual magic i don't necessarily you know i'm i'm kind of i kind of lean towards being a materialist but i think that the power of the occult is is psychological and Um, predominantly psychological, and I've just found it so helpful. And there's one practice in particular called sigil magic, which is where you draw a pattern. And as you're drawing this pattern, you, you envision a future or a goal that you that that you want to explore or an experience or an emotion that you want to explore and you ask yourself how did i get to this place as you draw the sigil and it can just be squiggles it can just be it can be whatever you want but but pouring that feeling into whatever it is that you're drawing how did i get to this place and so my question as i draw my sigil lately has been how did we move the dial forward on climate change? And how was I part of that? And to explore that feeling fully. What would it feel like? What would it feel like to, for that to be true? and to fully feel that and to pour that feeling into the sigil and then I and then you find uh, what's you reach a place called gnosis you you reach a state called gnosis which is an altered state of consciousness usually through meditation uh, you you uh, reach you go to a place of gnosis I usually do that through yoga you look at the sigil and that's called firing a sigil you you you're, you send it out into the universe and then you tear it up and you forget it hmm it's a very powerful process psychologically and and that and so i've that's kind of been my version of what you did of um how did we get there and exper- actually fully experiencing those emotions because i think one of the the benefits that i've experienced with the uh with chaos magic and with sigil magic is it is allowing me to experience emotions and possibilities that I otherwise wouldn't, and so that's a, I, I encourage people listening to find your own unique way of exploring the the experiences and emotions of of succeeding on this subject. And you can do it creatively: write a story, write a song, do weird occult bullshit like I do, <laughs> write a monologue like Peterson, and to, in a, in such a way that you can visualize the success and actually feel those emotions that you normally otherwise would not feel because the despair would just be too great. Because there's actually really interesting psychology that shows that once we are able to envision something, our subconscious, our brain is able to start connecting those dots.
2: Right. So some of the takeaways I'm having from our conversation of it's it's been helpful for me because it reminds me, you know, what I need to remind myself of all the time is I need to continually banish fear and guilt and shame um, and and anger too. I mean, anger has its place in in climate work, but again, it's it's not something that I can spend too much time with because it's not productive. And instead, pursue curiosity, creativity, and imagination, uh, and empathy and love. That those those are really the things when I think about climate change, those are the things that I want to stir up inside of me. And I, I think we need a of people who are curious about climate change as opposed to like running to the hills but like asking those questions well what's in this for me what opportunities does this hold for us what passions do i have that are affected that i can protect even more as they're at greater risk uh, and 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 i think that you know that gives a way forward that is sustainable and meaningful. And I, and it's not like pie in the sky. I mean, it really will make a big difference on the planet when we figure out what we're supposed to be doing.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, Peterson, this has been a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much for coming back on. Your hope is contagious, and I hope we continue to have more conversations like this. For people who are interested, where
2: can they find you? Everywhere. I'm on YouTube, and I and in <laughs> fact, if you you want to see the visual of the five stages of hot climate action, it's over there on YouTube at my YouTube account. Just look like for Peterson Toscano. Definitely on Twitter. I'm P2Sun on Twitter. The letter P, the number two, S O N. Facebook petersontoscano.com. And I produce a monthly podcast called Citizens Climate Radio. You can find it wherever you get podcasts. And I interview really interesting people who are doing fiction and art around climate change, who are race drivers, who are concerned about climate change, looking at environmental racism and faith, all sorts of different aspects that people don't typically think of. So that's Citizens Climate Radio.
1: Awesome. Yeah. So I'll put notes to that in the show notes and to all of your stuff in the show notes. Well, thank you so much. This has been fabulous. Thank you, Stephen.
2: Thanks. I'm so glad that we can talk about something other than conversion therapy. I'm just oh like, my God, yay, me too.
0: hallelujah. <laughs>
1: it's, it's a beautiful thing. We can go from conversion therapy to climate change. That <laughs> is that is strangely uh, That is strangely relieving. Anyway. All right. Well, that's the show for this week. The music is by the Jelly Rocks from the album Bang & Whimper. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify and wherever you listen to music. I need to thank my team, Carson Green and Justin Bryant Dozier, for uh, helping me with all the social media. They do all the images that you see on social media. They do all the graphics. They do all the posting for me. And they help keep me on track and keep me sane. The show is a Rock Candy production. It is mastered and produced by Matt Langston of Rock Candy. The show is written and edited by me, Stephen Long. And before we bring this show to a close, real quick, Announcement My dear friend Matt Langston, frontman of the band Eleventy he has a new album out. It's called The Rad Science B Sides. And to close this show out, instead of playing my regular theme music, we will close with one of his songs. And as usual, thanks for listening.
0: I am my whining with three chords and four, four timing, line by line. If it keeps me out of prison, my situation's tragic.